Matthew chapter 18. I needed just uh, one or two weeks to make the Gospel of Luke perfectly align with uh, having the resurrection accounts on Resurrection Sunday uh, later on in April. So uh, taking a one or two week pause, I'll have to key that in a little bit more this week. I knew I needed at least a one week buffer, so I wanted to take a pause as we consider this passage together that in a sense we're, we're not in the Gospel of Luke, but still considering uh, the cross of Christ and particularly how it affects this aspect of our, of our walk with the Lord, forgiveness. And so going to a very famous parable in Matthew chapter 18, uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Read this uh, together. Well, I'll read it for us and uh, you can follow along. Matthew chapter 18, this is, this is God's holy word. It's given to us for our good. Let us attend to its reading. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled All that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. We consider today living in the shadow of the cross and forgiving in the shadow of the cross. For that is the place where we find and ground our forgiveness. And as we approach this time of the year, now of course it's, it's my contention that all 365 days of the year we need to live in, in light of the cross and the resurrection and allow the work of Christ to shape all that we do. But certainly at this point of the year we intentionally set aside time and even extra days to think about the work of of Christ as we come upon Good Friday and and Easter and Ascension Day. But certainly one of the ways that we live in the shadow of the cross is forgiving in the shadow of the cross and understanding 
uh, and having an understanding that, that shows we understand Christ's work for us and what he finished for us. Forgiving the way that we have been forgiven. And uh, this does not mean, biblical forgiveness and reconciliation, one of the things that we'll see today, it does not mean this sort of uh, cavalier uh, wisping away all of the wrongs that have been done to us. Biblical forgiveness is understood in light of God's justice. And it's understood in the costliness of God's grace and how parties can be reconciled. So it's important to understand that as well. Forgiveness, biblically speaking, doesn't mean fully being forgiven without being reconciled and without uh, harmonious living after that forgiveness has taken place. Biblical forgiveness, however, does mean that in humility, as those who have been forgiven in Christ, we always stand ready to forgive. We always stand ready to be fully reconciled whenever we see repentance. And it also means that we would be filled with a proper grief, a biblical grief, when there is no repentance on the part of those who have wronged us. And there is no full reconciliation that can be achieved. Let's consider these things together. First, consider the glory of forgiveness. The glory of forgiveness that we find in Christ and in the gospel. Take a few moments to consider where we are in the gospel of Matthew, since we haven't gotten here uh, verse by verse like in the gospel of Luke. Matthew 18 is a section of the gospel where Jesus is teaching what it means to live as his people, what the community of the Messiah will look like. One of the foundations of this community is that it begins with a childlike trust and dependence upon God and a childlike humility. Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So position and pride and power, those earthly categories that, that seem to so consistently reign in earthly institutions and in earthly kingdoms, has no place in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Whoever humbles himself like this child, Jesus says, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The foundation of childlike trust and humility. Matthew 18 also shows us the superiority of of spiritual realities and eternal life. So later on in the chapter, Jesus says it's better to come into the kingdom, to hobble into the kingdom lame or crippled or blind, than it is to walk gracefully and powerfully into your condemnation. And thus, the the rest of chapter 18 unfolds those truths for us. What does it mean to live in light of this superior spiritual reality and the necessity of attaining eternal life? Well, it deals with matters of, of restoration, of discipline, of making sure that the sheep abide by the shepherd, guarding your life. And it also, of course, has to do with these issues around forgiveness and repentance, reconciliation and restoration. True love in Matthew 18 is not a tolerant avoidance of one another's sin, but it's a cognizance, it's an awareness that as the people of the Messiah, we abide in him and we live in a certain way. So we don't, out of tolerance, uh, avoid each other and each other's lives. When we see one of the sheep go astray, we partake in in a process to restore them and to bring them back to the life that they are to live. So it's important to see 
the, the context of this passage is Jesus is laying out these foundational truths, these prescriptions, these instructions for his people that it's primarily how we are to live and act towards one another. Even as we think about this parable, this parable of forgiveness. Now this has import and importance to our witness in the world. It is part of that. But that is not the primary aim of this parable. This parable is teaching us about our forgiveness toward one another. As the people who are constituted under the work of the Messiah. We see this in Peter's question in verses 21 and 22. Peter asks, how often must I forgive my brother, someone with whom he bears a a close, personal relationship, a familial relationship even. Jesus' answer in this parable is one that shows it is to be an unending forgiveness. It is to be a perfect forgiveness, right? 77 times or 70 times 7. Of course, 7 in the Bible, this number of perfection. So Jesus says it's to be an unending and a perfect forgiveness, but it's rooted in the the forgiveness that is shown to us in the gospel of Christ. So let's consider this parable together. First, we see the greatness of the debt. The greatness of the debt. A talent was a unit of measurement that it didn't have its own coin or its its own bill because it was a number that was so high. It was categorized as uh, about 20 years of working class wages. So every every dollar that a working class person would make over a 20-year span, that was one talent. In colloquial terms, this is what a normal person might call a bajillion dollars, right? If someone asks for, give me all the money that you've made over the last 20 years, every single cent, you say you're asking for a a bajillion dollars. That's one talent. You take 10,000 talents, and you're dealing with an astronomical sum. If you really wanted to bring it into today's categories of monetary value, this would be about $6 billion. $6 billion. That's 10,000 talents. Now, uh, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, depending on how you're looking at it, we hear numbers that are this high now. So this is not something that's, you know, completely unattainable for our minds to to think to think about. The national debt is over $20 trillion now. So we hear uh, things like this. And there are corporations that all the time take on $2 billion, $3 billion in debt. But uh, I would think that none of us would be in a place where we would want to take on $6 billion of debt to ourselves personally. It's an astronomical sum. And, of course, what it is saying to us in this parable is that our sin is a debt that cannot be paid off. It's not something that you can work and work and work and just sort of chip away at it. It's not something that's going to be erased in that kind of a way. Thomas Boston, a Puritan, highlighted something that was very insightful. He said, if a human being realizes that he or she is sinful... And that from this point forward, they may say to themselves, well, now I'm going to be obedient to God. Now I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to follow all of the commandments. I'm going to live the life that I ought to live. He said, now of course, uh, that's not going to hold true, but they may think that in their minds. But that does not deal with the problem of the wrath that they have already incurred, the debt that they have already brought upon themselves because of their sin. How are you going to pay that debt off? 
Because every moment you're going to be trying to be uh, holding fast to the commandments of God so that in the forward-looking view of your life you can be righteous. But how are you going to pay off what you already owe? Even if someone were to convince themselves that they could keep the commandments perfectly, which of course we can't in our sinful state. How are you going to pay off what you owe? And there are all kinds of, of uh, signs throughout the world that people have this sense that there's something they need to pay off. I ran across a story in the, in the New York Times this week, actually, where there's this religious festival, the largest in the world. It's in India, I believe. I think it's called Kumbh Mela. And they, they estimate that at this religious festival that's going on over a, a month or so, that there may be as many as 100 million people or more who come to this to have this spiritual experience. And what happens is there's this confluence of two rivers in India, and the myth, the legend, is that there's a spiritual river that flows underneath that, a third river flowing with divine nectar, and people go into this river to cleanse themselves. It's a, a cleansing ritual. And even though this water is very dirty and very unsanitary, people will even drink the water to have it go into their bodies so that that cleansing power might go into them. The problem is that they're thinking that they're joining in the process of attaining their own purification, paying off what they owe, going on this long pilgrimage and trying to appease the gods. But the problem is, when there's not many gods, when there is one, and when the standard of holiness is his standard of holiness, there is no way, of course, that fallen sinful human beings can pay off the debt. How are you going to pay off what you owe? But in the greatness of the debt, of course, we see in the parable the grace-filled compassion of the king. Verse 27 is really where we see the gospel truth come forth. Verse 27, it says, the king, the master, what does he do? He takes pity on the servant who begs him to forgive his sin. The verb behind this phrase, taking pity, or in other translations, showing compassion. Showing compassion is a verb that shows up in three parables. Three parables. And you won't be surprised to know that the three parables, of course, this parable, the Good Samaritan, and the Prodigal Son. To be filled with compassion. It's a verb that was, was formed to, to sort of show that it's something that wells up from the very insides, the character of someone that moves them to action. The father who sees the prodigal son returning, there is a, a compassion that wells up in him so much that he runs to receive his son. It's telling us about the, the character of God. What is our God like? There is something in his character that's mysterious to us because we'll never understand its full depths. But there's something that moves him to action. There's something about his character that he desires to forgive sin. He desires to show compassion and to take pity on the one who is humble and contrite and filled with repentance. This is the character of God. You, O Lord, are compassionate and gracious. Psalm 103, Psalm 86. You are patient and demonstrate great loyal love and faithfulness. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? Who is a God like you who shows compassion to thousands? Jesus, of course, is the embodiment of this part of the character of God. Jesus' life is evidence that he is a God who delights to forgive sin. The Son of God came to walk the earth. Why? To seek and to save the lost. He embodies that character of God. He is evidence of that 
for who uh, that which we know God shows. This is the gospel that God forgives those who humbly repent of their sin and seek salvation in him. In the scriptures, when our sinfulness is a debt, in the gospel it is paid off, like what we see here. If our sin is a disease, in the gospel it is cleansed. If our sinfulness is pollution, in, in the gospel it is taken away. If it is likened to estrangement from God, you are reconciled to God. In the gospel, you see, it's, it's a fullness of, of restoration. And this is the umbrella of grace under which all uh, God's people live. And, and this is what the, the parable impresses upon us. If all of God's people understand the magnitude of the grace that God has shown to them, how can we all not collectively, together, show forth a radical forgiveness? If we've all had this $6 billion debt erased... How can we not show forth a radical and a godlike forgiveness? But what we see in the parable is the missing gratitude of the servant. The missing gratitude of the servant. The other servants put it together. They say, hang on a second. See, they use logic and reason. They say, look at what he was forgiven. He goes out. He finds someone who owes him a much smaller debt. And there's something wrong here. There's something that is amiss. So they note the inconsistency, but then the king exercises judgment. Very simple what he says. Shouldn't my actions toward you have issued forth in similar actions from you toward others? The massive inconsistency that we see in the missing gratitude of the wicked servant. The community of the Messiah, and what is pressing upon us is that how is the community of the Messiah to live? What we see and, and what it brings forth to us is the necessity of the, the grateful, but that is to say the transformed heart. The wicked servant is ungrateful, therefore his heart has not been transformed by this grace that was shown to him, this mercy that was shown to him. We see the, the necessity of a grateful and a transformed heart. Jesus says, and m- many aspects, many parts of scripture impress upon us the importance of being forgiving people. It's not just the words of Jesus, the words of the epistles, it's the words of the Old Testament. How will we reflect the character of God that he shows to his people? Jesus says, though, in the, elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, take the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Matthew chapter 6, he goes on to explain, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Mark 11 Uh, Verse 26, if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. And so we see all throughout Scripture the necessity of being forgiving people. But here's the question that is brought to us when we read passages like this. Will God forgive us because we have been forgiving? Or rather, do we forgive because we have been forgiven? That's an, an, an essential distinction. Will God forgive us because we have shown forgiveness? Or are we to forgive because we have been forgiven? The latter is the truth, that we live out of the truth of the gospel. See, the parable gives us the picture. The parable gives us uh, the, the picture. The reason the servant is condemned in the parable is that he does not act in a way that reflects the mercy and compassion that is shown to him. He does not act in a fitting way. Verses 26 and 29. Verse 26, the wicked servant is desperately repenting. Verse 29, his fellow servant repents to him. 
and very similar the way the two servants repent in this passage, but very different responses. The king takes pity, shows compassion and mercy and grace. The wicked servant does not. And thus the, the condemnation that comes upon him from the master is shown to be just through the, the, the actions that the servants say this doesn't match up. Logically speaking, there is something he is doing that is amiss. He should show forth a similar kind of forgiveness. The issue is that the forgiveness of the king has had no transforming effect on the wicked servant. It has not transformed him at all. So the condemnation that's experienced in this parable, that's pronounced upon the wicked servant, is what is to be experienced by all those who claim to have a saving knowledge of Jesus, but remain completely devoid of mercy, remain completely uh, absent of grace or forgiveness. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. James chapter 2 verse 13, Judgment is merciless for the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. The Bible teaches us that merciless people, graceless people, completely unforgiving people, cannot experience salvation and God's mercy. But again, the parable gives us the picture, doesn't it? So the parable gives us the proper doctrine as well. It gives us the the picture, so it gives us the proper doctrine. The posture of willing forgiveness, being willing to forgive, showing forth forgiveness of a transformed heart, is, comes forth out of our union with Christ, out of being united to the one by faith and through whom we have forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians chapter 3, Therefore, as God's chosen people, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Paul's saying you've been forgiven. It has been completed. It is done. So now go forth and forgive. It's a fruit of our union with Christ. John Bunyan comments on this idea. He says, uh, it, his poem he penned said, Run, John, run, the law commands but gives us neither feet nor hands. The law has no power to transform. Then he says, far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The gospel tells us not to just run, but to fly. The kind of forgiveness and grace and mercy we are to show forth is something that, that goes even beyond what we find elsewhere in the law. But the gospel gives us wings to fly. God grants what he commands in the gospel of Grace. This is what it means to live in, in the shadow of the cross. We can only obey these commands with a transformed heart, as those who have been granted forgiveness, as those who understand we have been forgiven 10,000 talents, a $6 billion debt. And so the parable gives us the proper doctrine. The parable also gives us the prescription. It gives us the prescription. There must be no end to our long suffering with one another. Seventy times seven. Seventy-seven times. And biblical humility, of course, gives us the necessary posture. It's biblical humility, as Matthew 18 says, you must become like a child. And this is what biblical forgiveness is all about. Whatever I need to forgive my brother or sister is not as great as what my heavenly Father has forgiven me. People might... might, uh, 
give great wrongs towards one another. They may do something that is completely reprehensible, but we need to understand that all of our lives, all of the sins that we commit, every impurity is first a sin against God. So we need to know that whatever I need to forgive you is not as great as what my Heavenly Father has forgiven me. The parable gives us the process, doesn't it? It gives us the process as well. You see, this all happens in the context of repentance. This is not a nebulous tolerance that the scriptures are prescribing for us. It happens in response to repentance. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4 says this, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. In the context of God's people then, the way that this works and and that issues forth into harmonious living is that when a brother wrongs someone else, a sister wrongs someone else, there is to be a recognition of his or her sin so that they are brought to repentance, so that there can be full reconciliation and restoration. So this happens as a response to repentance, and this happens repeatedly as many times as necessary. This is what this parable is impressing upon us. But what we need to know and what we need to see is that uh, oftentimes in this cruel world, in this dark world, we're going to be dealing with situations where there is no repentance. And so what does this parable teach us beyond just within the community of the church? Prescribes for us what? When we wrong our brother or sister, we need to understand and know that we have wronged them. And with childlike humility and dependence upon the Lord, we need to be brought to a place where we are repentant of what we have done. And the one who has been wronged, what are they compelled to do? To forgive and to forgive and to forgive as many times as necessary. But there are situations where that doesn't happen. So as we close then today, finally we'll consider the grace to live as forgiving people. Two particular situations that I want to think about as we seek to live in the shadow of the cross. The first is this. A brother or sister in Christ wrongs you, but is not repentant about it. Uh, They don't recognize the wrong that they have done. Uh, They are unwilling to repent, and it causes great pain for you. Second situation, someone who is not a part of the body of Christ wrongs you or someone you love and because there is that fundamental difference as someone who does not recognize this, the lordship of Jesus Christ there is no repentance and, and thus uh, that causes an even greater pain in the context of these situations. So in both of these situations there's a level of reconciliation that simply cannot be achieved as what happens when the wrongdoer repents. Biblical forgiveness is one that sees an actual forgiveness and reconciliation occur around repentance and compassion. Just as God ultimately forgives only those who repent and can only forgive because of the price paid on the cross, biblical forgiveness is not a cheap grace. It's it's not just wisping away all of the wrongs that have been done to us. It's a costly grace. So, in in these kinds of situations, someone wrongs you and is not repentant, there's a level of reconciliation that cannot be achieved. But, Scripture does tell us that just as God's love and His willingness to forgive goes before our repentance, 
So our hearts are to always keep that gospel truth in our minds as we show forth a willingness to forgive. So even when we cannot be reconciled fully, to be transformed by the gospel means to have a willingness to forgive. Think about what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Mark chapter 11, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Thus, if we are wronged by an unrepentant brother or sister, we could say, first of all, from Matthew chapter 18, that uh, they ought to be subjected to some measure of discipline so that they may see the error of their way and be restored. Matthew 18 teaches that. But if we are wronged by someone in this world who knows not Christ or his transforming love, what are we to do? We are called to not hold that sin against them in bitterness and malice and vengeance in our hearts. We are to, to, to get to, we are to, by God's grace, and it takes a miracle of God's grace to get to this place, to where in our hearts we are ready and willing to forgive someone who wrongs us. But when that happens, and this is really the way that, that you live in the shadow of the cross and in the shadow of God's grace, rather than holding bitterness against someone and, and, and vengeance against someone who has wronged us or has wronged someone we love, when, when we come to a place in our hearts where we stand ready to forgive them and yet reconciliation is withheld because there has not been that full reconciliation, what happens to us? We, we are rather filled with grief because this is a person who has not experienced the transforming grace and love of God. This is a person who has not understood the $6 billion debt that needed to be forgiven them. So it undercuts the malice and the vengeance that we feel towards those who wrong us. So when there is no repentance, and we see that biblically speaking, restoration happens Full reconciliation only happens when there is repentance. But when there is no repentance, we remind ourselves of the lavish grace of God. Why? Because his grace goes before our sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And thus we rid our hearts of malice and vengeance. We stand ready to forgive, but yet we grieve that there has been no full reconciliation. In order to do that, we need just three simple principles. The first is this. Renounce our own selfish desire for vengeance. It's not our place to take vengeance and to hold revenge in our hearts. So Romans 12 says, So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There the apostle understands that you're not going to live peaceably with all. You're not going to be fully reconciled when there is no repentance of the heart of someone who wrongs you. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. First, renounce your own selfish desire for vengeance. Secondly, rely on the God who will ultimately set all things right. Rely on the God who will ultimately set all things right. Jesus is our example here. He committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. But he was entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Just like Jesus, we entrust ourselves to the one who judge, the one who judges justly. And understand that nothing that befalls us is for anything but for our ultimate good. And then lastly, repay good for evil. Repay good for evil. 
Romans chapter 12, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. No pain that befalls you is outside of the purposes of God and the saving purposes of God to save his elect. Within the community of of the Messiah, within the church, living in the shadow of the cross, how are we to live? We're all to live with a with growing and under, understanding of the grace of God and to grant a lavish forgiveness, an unending and a perfect forgiveness towards one another. There are in this world painful situations where reconciliation is held back by someone who wrongs another and refuses to repent. When that happens, as God's people, what are we called to do? To have a willingness to forgive in our hearts, but yet as we understand that reconciliation cannot occur, When there is no repentance, what do we do? We grieve that that person who refuses to repent has not experienced the transforming love and grace of God. This is what it means to understand the costly grace that was purchased for us on the cross. Called to not be filled with malice and bitterness, but rather we grieve for those who, in the shadow of the cross, in the shadow of so great a salvation, would willfully Reject it. To not see their debt of six billion dollars that they owe the king. But rather, as uh, we who seek to live and to honor Christ, we by grace will enter into an everlasting rest that was purchased for us by the one who lived and died and ever lives for us. We're to forgive as God has forgiven us towards your brothers and sisters to show a lavish forgiveness. And in this imperfect world, when it is withheld from us, when there are those who have wronged us and do not recognize, and you cannot be fully reconciled to those people, what do you do? Rather than holding bitterness and malice, you grieve that there will be those who will stand justly condemned, even in the shadow of the work of Christ, because they have not understood the kind of forgiveness that can come through the gospel of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help in this area, and we know that by your Spirit we will need grace to to understand these words and to live them out. But Father, we pray for peace in our community, uh, that we would be forgiving people towards one another, that as we wrong each other we would recognize that, and that forgiveness would be granted. Father, in those situations in this world where that cannot be attained, Father, we ask that you would not allow us to be filled with malice and bitterness, but by your grace we would grieve for those who know not your transforming love in the gospel. We pray and ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, respond together in song. We'll sing verses 1, 2, and 5 of number 400.